0: I want to tell you a story this morning. It's been around for a while. It's a story about a young pastor who gets his uh, first call to to the ministry in a church. It's a rural setting. And he is asked fairly early on to do a funeral for a man who has no family. And the burial for that man is going to take place even further out of town uh, than he's ever been. And so he gets everything ready. He sets out on his way. He's not quite sure where this place is, but he thinks he's got the directions. And after many, many wrong turns and many attempts to try and correct his direction, he finally gets there. And he's really late for this, uh, this graveside funeral service that he's going to do. He sees a backhoe there. He sees that the hole where the body has been placed has already been filled. He sees a couple workers standing there. And he gets out of the car. He says, I'm sorry I'm late. He starts doing the whole service. He preaches a very long sermon and then wraps it all up and gives a blessing. And as he turns around, uh, one of the workers turns to the other and says, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. I've never seen anything like that. (laughs) You see, it's an obvious scene. It looks like what it should be but here's something completely different that he's come upon, an unexpected reality. Indeed, that's the kind of thing that we run into today, an unexpected reality. As Peter, the disciple who Jesus loved, we're going to call him John for short today, and Mary all come to the empty tomb and have to make heads or tails of what's just happened. It's an unexpected reality. And so as we dig into that. We've heard the text. We'll return to the text in just a little bit. I have a couple other uh, passages I want to get into first. Um, I want to make a contention and ask a question, and then we'll refine the question as we we get deeper into this. The contention is this. Um, If a person believes that God created the world, and generally speaking, that's still a a common belief. I believe it. Uh, It makes the most sense of the situation, in my opinion. If we believe God created the universe, then God raising somebody from the dead halfway through human history is not going to be a major feat, comparatively. If God created out of nothing, it seems so obvious, but I think it needs to be stated that clearly. If God can create in the beginning and be, as we'll sing in the final song today, the potentate of time, which is just one of the coolest phrases if God can indeed set this all in motion, then raising one person in the middle isn't going to be a major stretch. And so if you can live with the first contention that God created, then the contention of Easter, we just have to follow the evidence to make sure that's indeed what happened. That God, by his power, raised Jesus Christ from the dead after three days. The question then that I have is what happens then when we encounter the evidence of God's work. Where do we find ourselves when we actually encounter that evidence of God's work? And I want to consider the story this morning before us as a historical event, because I believe it is. And I believe the evidence points to it being a historical event. And as we look at that, we're confronted with the issue of what does it mean to then believe? So let's review where we've come from. I think the video at the beginning helped us review what happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Let's just start there. And I mean 2,000 years ago what happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, not this week what happened. There's a difference in the expectation versus the reality that happened. You see, the expectation that people had, and remember this is a a Jewish conversation, Jesus was Jewish, this is all God's covenant people, the expectation of of the salvation of all humanity was tied into this covenant that God made with Israel, with these people. They expected a number of things to happen when their Messiah finally came, that is, the the anointed uh, Savior. Um, They expected at least two things. One of them was that... uh, The kingdom would be restored because right now they're under the rule of the Romans. They don't like it. They're looking for the day when this king in the line of David comes back and restores the sovereignty of Israel back to itself. And they're ruled under an earthly king, but ultimately under God in the way that that they had in the days of King David. And as Pastor Jody really expertly did last week, she she talked about how they had had that expectation kind of put before them a couple times, 100 and 100 plus years before this moment when Jesus comes in uh, to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They had had that expectation of of a a victorious uh, conqueror coming in with a sword in hand. And what do they get when Jesus comes in? They're putting their palm branches down and they're putting their coats down And you would expect somebody coming in with a sword if you're going to be victorious and that's going to happen. Or somebody coming in on a horse because that's uh, an animal of war and instead what do you get? Jesus on a donkey, which is not an animal of war. Nobody charges in on a donkey. It's an animal of peace. They have an expectation, but the reality is very different all of a sudden. They also had an expectation that the purity of the temple would be restored. That was the high point of everything, how atonement could be achieved, that they could be made one with God through the the rites of the temple. And right now, at the time of Jesus, uh, there was a lot of corruption in that, which Jesus himself demonstrates for us. Again, we saw this last week, that Jesus comes in, and the book of John, the first thing he does when he gets in Jerusalem is overturn those tables and say, get out of here, you're making this place a den of thieves. This is my father's house. This is not how this is supposed to be. But that, it turns out, is the thing that, the the event that broke the camel's back, the straw that broke the camel's back, was when Jesus came into the temple and did that. The religious leaders said, no more. No more. They finally put the plot in action to kill Jesus. And so you have these high hopes at the beginning of the week as Jesus comes in on this donkey. And by the end of the week, you have people yelling, Give us Barabbas! Crucify this man! And he was put on a Roman cross and killed. That's all just within a week's period of time. These high hopes turn on a dime during that period. The Apostle Peter in the book of 1 Peter gives us some meaning to this, as do many New Testament authors. It'll be on the screen. He quotes from Isaiah 53, which we just heard. And he says of Jesus, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It turns out, and this is good news, that the promise of Jesus was greater than the expectation. What they expected was not quite what was going to happen, but what Jesus brought was so much better. And this passage also helps us enter into the understanding of belief which I think is important for us as we walk forward. Because within the New Testament, the, the writers of the New Testament use belief, and, and they use it in a, a more broad sense than we might like. As they utilize belief, it gets targeted in different ways, and they don't always make a clear distinction between what we'd say is knowledge and what, what I'd call trust, or the practice of what we know. Do you see those two things? The belief requires knowledge, I believe, ultimately, and trust, those two things. You don't just know it, right? I can know, practically speaking, the money that's in my bank account, but it doesn't actually move into action until I go make a transaction with it, right? So we can have knowledge, but the trust is actually living it out and saying, oh yeah, that actually is the amount that's in there. And so we can have knowledge, and a lot of us do, we can have knowledge that God exists. And in fact, an awful lot of people end up just there. Yes, God exists. That's good enough for me. The author of James then puts us to shame when he says, you know, even the demons believe in God. And you know what they do? They shudder. They recognize his power. So belief can't simply be, I have the knowledge of something. There's got to be some trust Put into it ultimately for belief to be complete. And so Jesus actually, uh, we can see in the book of John again, and this is John 10, when Jesus is being challenged, hey, tell us, are you the Messiah? He kind of uses belief and pushes it in that direction. In John 10, 25, they're saying, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you. I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now you see he used believe twice and he kind of pushes it a little bit both times. You didn't take in the knowledge and then you didn't do anything with the knowledge second time around. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, trust I think is exemplified in that image of shepherd with sheep. The sheep don't just know he's the shepherd. They follow. They put their trust in him. And that's belief in its complete sense. So now let's take that information and let's go back to the empty tomb. And let's start with Peter. Peter uh, appears to not have trained for the marathon because he arrives second and John is faster than him. Peter gets to the tomb. Second, John waits for him. It doesn't tell us why, but Peter enters first. And, and this is Peter who, uh, all throughout uh, the Gospels, this is Peter who's eager to be with Jesus and do what Jesus calls to do and, and do, he's, he's zealous for this Messiah that's come. He believes Jesus is the one. He's the one who's going to step out on the water. When Jesus is walking in the water, he says, I want to do it too. So he goes out on the water. He's the only one who does that. He's the one who on the night when Jesus was betrayed took out his sword and chopped off an ear to try and stop it. This is Peter. Peter's zealous. Peter put his full faith and hope in Jesus Christ. But now what we run into in John 20 with Peter here is a disillusioned Peter. This is a Peter who said, I'll never deny you Jesus. And then on the night when Jesus was betrayed, denied him three times and now was in hiding when Mary found him. He's not sure what just happened. His hopes were dashed at the cross. That's the Peter that we encounter here. And it's very interesting to see that then Peter here, when he walks away from the tomb, you see a, you don't really get a conclusion to what Peter does with the information. Steps into the tomb, he's confused, and he walks away. Now, we know there's more to the story, but that's not what we get at this point. We just get a disillusioned Peter. But I'm going to suggest to you that Peter did what all of us should do and some of us don't do. That is, Peter actually stepped into the tomb and analyzed the evidence before him. Peter stepped into the tomb and weighed out what was there, at least. And we see, as we go further with the beloved disciple John and with Mary, we see them weighing out the evidence even more before them. But often, I run into people who say that they've kind of considered the claims of Christianity, and we're narrowing it down to the empty tomb today, And they've made their conclusion, and walked away, when I think in reality, all too often we haven't even stepped into the empty tomb to truly consider what's before us. Peter steps in, even if he's disillusioned. And so I ask you to step into the empty tomb with me for just a moment here. Because if we look at the facts before us that were plain, I think, to the disciples here on this Easter morning, if we look at the facts, we can say, historically speaking, that Jesus existed. So we're not talking about mythical stuff right now. We're not talking about metaphorical stuff. We're talking about something that actually happened in real history 2,000 years ago. There actually is and was a historical Jesus who existed. He actually rode into the donkey, into, into Jerusalem, rode on that donkey. He actually was killed on a Roman cross on Friday, and the tomb actually was empty on Sunday. And, and just to give us some, some more sort of something to work with here, uh, author and scholar Gary Habermas, who studies this deeply, has tried to put together what can what can scholars who study all of this agree on about what happened on Easter morning and right and the events around that. And so he's put together twelve things that scholars across the spectrum who this is their field, whether they're uh, completely secular, or non-believing, but they study it, or whether they're completely on the other side and fully in and believe everything about it, he says, here's what, here's 12 things they can agree on. And there's one caveat to one, and I'll give that to you. He says, one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. So you're not going to find a historian who studies this period who's going to say, yeah, Jesus didn't exist. That's a rising belief for some reason, but it's not grounded in the facts. So if somebody says that to you, you can say, how did you come to that conclusion? I need some facts on that one. There's no, the historical evidence is too strong. And he died by Roman crucifixion. The second thing they agree on is that he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. The third thing is soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. That's right in our text here right? They're not sure what's going on. Mary had to go find them in hiding to bring some out. Uh, number uh, five, the disciples, oh, excuse me, four is important. Jesus' tomb was found empty soon, very soon after his interment. Here's the caveat. Maybe 75% of scholars fully affirm that, but the other 25% have a lot of explaining to do if you really dig into it. So, um, because there just isn't a good explanation otherwise. Number five, the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus, so they believed they saw him. And a lot of disciples believed that. Number six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. That is, it's not legendary. It's not made up 200 years later or reformulated 200 years later. It's very early they're proclaiming this story that we're reading here. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and buried buried shortly before. That is to say, if there were people who could say, no, he wasn't crucified, we were there, they could say it. They could be challenged, but nobody does that. Number nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is to say, what we're talking about this morning is the central point of all that we believe, and if we can't make something of it, if it could be proven false, then we can all pack up and go home, because this isn't the right thing. This is not the truth. God's truth is not found here, but we obviously don't believe that. We're here this morning. Ten, Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. More on that in a moment. Eleven, James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before his time, was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. And twelve, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, that is Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, no one of those things is a slam dunk case, but you start putting the pieces together and you say, Something happened that day. Something happened that day 2,000 years ago. One more, uh, just a couple more things that, that go with this uh, from N.T. Wright, a book I highly recommend, Surprised by Hope, by the way. Um, he says, a couple other things we should recognize. Jewish tombs, especially those of martyrs, were venerated and often became shrines. There's no sign of that ever happening to Jesus' grave. Again, not a slam-dunk case, but it's fairly telling. Two, the early church's emphasis on the first day of the week as their special day is very hard to explain unless something striking really did happen. A gradual or even sudden dawning of faith is hardly sufficient to explain it. So we're worshiping on Sunday because the early church worshiped on Sunday and made that shift. But ignoring the Sabbath was punishable by death. That would have been Saturday. These were all Jews that were worshiping and switched the day. Something happened on that day that made them switch. And third, the disciples were hardly likely to go out and suffer and die for a belief they didn't think was anchored in fact. And of course, somebody could say, well, maybe they were wrong. Somebody could say that, but they thought they were right. They thought they'd really witnessed something, and an awful lot of them thought they'd witnessed something. There's a lot to make of that, isn't there? And this is not just made up. This is stuff you can investigate. That's why I bring it up. Just as an important point, I don't like tomatoes. I think they taste awful, and I try them three times a year. My kids try and convert me to make me like tomatoes, and it doesn't work, but I still try them. But I'm assuming at some point in your life, you were a child, um, and I'm assuming you've been around children at some point, or maybe even have them. You're in one of those categories. And if you've ever been around a kid, or you were a kid, and somebody said, can you eat your peas? And the kid said, I don't like them. And you said, have you tried them? Well, no. (laughs) Then how do you know you don't like them? Right? That's the follow-up question. Have you stepped into the empty tomb? Have you actually stepped into the empty tomb and really weighed out the facts of the matter? Peter walks away disillusioned. Then we have John, the beloved disciple. We won't spend much time on him, but if you go to John 20, verse 8, it talks about John who waited there. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And what did he do? He saw and believed. Now, it's an immature belief. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to make of everything yet, but he saw it, and he can't come to any other conclusion than something has happened here beyond my explanation. God has done a work here that goes beyond what I expected. Verse, 20, verse 9, which is on the screen as well, they said they did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now, he told them he was going to do that. They still didn't understand that, and they had to go back and figure out what that meant. But I want to point out that a small belief based on evidence is better than a rejection without investigation. Do you hear that? A small belief based on evidence is better than a rejection without investigation. And John and Peter both go back from the tomb, and they go back to the people who know the story, and they say, let's check our notes again and see if maybe we missed something in our expectation." And that's exactly what they're supposed to do. That's exactly why we gather together too. That sometimes we're not quite sure how to understand the text, but because we gather together as God's people and we know the story, we can say, aha, I know what God's doing. That's what they do. And that's what we still do today. Now let's get to Mary. And let's get introduced to Mary uh, as we consider her testimony this morning. Uh, In Luke 8... Those of you following along, you don't have to turn there. It'll come up on the screen. But in Luke 8, starting at verse 1, we are introduced to Mary and a few others. Um, It says, after this, so this is right after Jesus had his feet washed with the perfume. That's not Mary doing that, by the way. After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town and and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, his disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So if you've ever wondered how Jesus was able to survive traveling around preaching, he had some faithful women who had literally been saved by him who were supporting his ministry and followed him as disciples. And that's Mary is one of those key players She's one of his disciples. And let's just clarify, Mary was not a prostitute. It doesn't tell us that anywhere in the text. And Mary was not romantically interested in Jesus and did not marry him and have a great, 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 great grandchild named Sophie who went around Paris with Tom Hanks. Sorry to spoil the Da Vinci Code. So that's not Mary. Mary is who we're seeing here. Mary was faithful in life. She was faithful in death. You can see in the text, she's the one who's there early on. It says in verse 1 of chapter 20, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So let's point out, Mary is still observing Sabbath. Right? They buried Jesus on Friday. They broke the legs of the uh, the two criminals next to him so they'd die faster so they could bury everybody on, on Friday night before Sabbath truly began. And then she waits until the very first moment of daylight when Sabbath is no longer going on, so she's not breaking the law to go and take care of Jesus. So remember when we talked about that they shifted to the first day of the week? That was deeply ingrained. Let's remember that. So she didn't want to break Sabbath. She goes there. Verse 2 then, it said, she came, or she, uh, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Most likely grave robbers, is what she's thinking. But what's unusual about this is that the clothes, the very most uh, worthwhile thing to steal, are still there. And the text points us out to the fact that they're not just still there wrapped up in a nice, neat pile. They're there as if the body just disappeared. As if there had been a body. Now there's not a body. But where is the body? But the clothes are still there. The things that are worth stealing all three saw this. It doesn't make sense. It's the opposite of their expectation. In the ancient world, just like today, people expected dead people would stay dead. They didn't have some other alternative belief. And so Mary is also, just like Peter, disillusioned with this, right? And, and she meets these angels, and, and they, they say, why are you crying? And, and you can see that her faith kind of gets a little deconstructed along the way. Like, I expected God to do blank. That's what she's thinking. And yet, that's not what she's experiencing. But I want to point out that Mary does something that we should take note of. When the expectation that she has don't meet up with the reality God brings, she grieves, but she does not give up. Do you hear that? She grieves, but she does not give up. I was wrong, but that doesn't mean God's unfaithful. That doesn't mean God's not present. That doesn't mean God's not here. It means my expectation was not correct. You see, she had a deeper faith than the moment. She had a belief that was deeply invested in what God was doing. And so it was possible for her human expectations to be tempered by God's divine plans. She could say, I might have been wrong about what God was going to do but God can correct me. So how does Mary move from bewilderment to belief? Well, she hangs on is what she does. She sticks around. And then who enters the scene? Well, God sends his son. Jesus enters and reframes what he was doing. So you go to verse 15. It said, Jesus is there. Mary's crying because she can't figure this out. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? And I'll get him. Jesus said, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God, and your God. She sees the work of God right in front of her eyes, And God reveals to her that something completely different has now happened and a new reality has set in. Everything's different. It's not like it was before. It's going to be completely different now because her expectations are now tempered by God's divine plan. While there might have been a lot of different expectations in Jesus' day about what was going to happen at the end of all things, people believed that at the end of all things that there was going to be a resurrection of the dead— People were going to rise and stand there for judgment, and God was going to bring the faithful in. You can go to the Mount of Olives today and see all the graves still aiming at the Temple Mount in expectation of that day, but nobody expected that God was going to raise one guy halfway through history and inaugurate his kingdom from that point forward and call the faithful then. That God, through Jesus Christ, we have the prototype of what's supposed to be of what God is doing starting that day. And Mary's belief is confirmed, and she testifies. And that testimony, we should recognize that Jesus sends her. He says, go and tell. And then verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things. Mary becomes the first apostle, not only the first witness. She witnesses the risen Jesus Christ, and he says, now go and tell. Jesus sends her, which is what an apostle is. Somebody who's sent to witness. And I think it's important to recognize that they encounter the empty tomb, they see the facts before them, they make sense of it, at least Mary is the one who makes the most sense of it, and then they testify to what they've seen. And it's important to go through the the factual elements of this. I'm actually trained as a historian, and when I look at this, the historical reliability of what we're looking at is very solid, it's remarkable. And I look at that and I compare, and I'm just going to use one simple example to compare. I've done this with the confirmation class. I've handed them a Book of Mormon, for instance, and I said, now look at the maps in there. What maps are in there? Well, maps of upstate New York and a big map of the world. But the whole thing takes place in South and Central America. There's nobody that can name any of those place names or find them on a map. Why? Because they don't exist. Go to the Bible. What do we have? We have the testimony of people, but we also have place names and, and people that actually existed. That we can go back and point to and we can say, what's the reliability of this and, this and this and this and this and this? And what do we make sense of the story that they tell? And the story that people outside of that tell about that same story. We can do that. We can piece it together and have some factual uh, basis for what we trust in, believe. Mary believes. She's the first witness Thanks be to God for her preaching that day. Thanks be to God for Mary's witness that day. And we should note that in, in this time, a woman's testimony was often not worth much in the Jewish world. There was a little variance on that. Sometimes it was worth almost nothing. Sometimes it was worth something. Sometimes it took two, women's t- two women to equal the testimony of one man. But what do you have in this case? It takes two men to equal the testimony of one woman in this case. Thank you, Mary. And furthermore, if I just may point out, If you were making up this story, you wouldn't use women as your first witnesses. You wouldn't also have a crucified Savior who died uh, the way Jesus died. All of this is just—it's called the criterion of embarrassment. You wouldn't have the disciples hiding. They would have known what's going on. They would have gone out and found it. There's too much in this story that lends itself to credibility. Mary believes. Her knowledge has moved to trust. She stepped into the facts. She believed what she witnessed. And so we come back to our original contention. If we believe God created the universe, then bringing Jesus back from the dead halfway through time is no stretch. So what happens when we encounter the evidence of Jesus being brought back from the dead by God's power? Have you stepped into the empty tomb? I'm going to invite our musicians forward, and they're going to start making their way. And uh, as they're coming up on stage, I'm going to enter us into prayer. So it will be a little movement here for just a moment. But the prayer I'm going to use uh, comes from the Didache, which is an ancient early church text. And uh, for that prayer, there, it comes a point at the end where it does ask if you want to repent to repent, And if you're holy, to come before God's presence. Wherever you find yourself this morning when it comes to trusting God, make this prayer your own. Be lifted up to God in this prayer so that you can draw close to the lover of your soul this morning. Let's pray. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you cause to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to all for enjoyment that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you did freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. And gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come, and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let them come. If anyone is not holy, let them repent. Maranatha. Lord, come. Amen.